How are y'all doing this morning? Good? Good. I'm glad. My name is Fred. I'm the lead pastor here. If I didn't get a chance to meet you um, on the way in, I'd love to say hi and get to know you a little bit on the way out. Um, we're going to go ahead and dive right in today. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Revelation 2, chapters, uh, chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. If you need a Bible, there's some in front of you. If you're using that Bible, it's on page 870, or you can also follow along in the Bible app. Are we, are we live in the Bible app? We're good? Okay, good, good. We weren't first service, at least for part of it, but Carol fixed it, so thank you, Carol. Very good. And the internet's fixed it, so that's good. Um, all right, as you're turning there, um, here is, uh, I have a, a question for you, and I want to know if you've ever experienced this. Um, have you ever experienced conflict with someone? And, okay, so good, okay, we're all on the same page there. Have you ever tried this advice, though, that you must compromise to end a conflict. You must compromise to end a conflict. Have you ever been in a conflict and tried compromise as a way to end it? If so, then here's what happened. You and the person met in the middle, right, of this conflict. And has this ever happened to you? Like, it's happened to me. It's happened in marriage. It's happened in, 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 in work. It's happened in Fred's uh, compromise. I mean, in friends. I'm Fred. In friends. Um, it, it's happened where I've tried to use compromise uh, to end a conflict. Well, here's a, tr- a truth that I wish I would have known earlier, and it's, and it's this. And if you've tried compromise, you can probably attest to this too, is that in a compromise, everyone loses. Right? Now, here's what's weird. Right? Some of you are like, no, hold on. This, this, this sounds incorrect, doesn't it? Because compromise is supposed to work. Well, listen to this. In the definition of compromise, like Oxford Dictionary says this about compromise. Compromise is accepting standards that are lower than desirable, right? Dictionaries don't lie, right? Neither does the internet. Abraham Lincoln said that. So you'll catch it later. All right, all right let, but let me show you why compromise doesn't work because it really, it really it doesn't work. It's, it's not the best way, okay? I'm going to go school teacher on you for just a moment. Um, imagine your school teacher, like elementary school counselor, that's me, all right, for just a moment. Here, here, here's why compromise doesn't work, right? I'm going to put a, a diagram up here, and I'm going to explain the diagram, all right? So, so this is a diagram where uh, if you're looking at it, it's kind of a grid to think about how to end conflict. And so the people on the top of this, of this rectangle have a very high concern for the relationship, and people on the bottom don't. The people on the far left have a low desire to have their, their needs met. That's what low and achieved needs mean. And the people on the, on the right have a high desire to have their needs met. And so here's how this looks in a conflict. If you have a high desire for the, the relationship, but a low desire to have your needs met, to end a conflict, you will yield. And you will say, baby, whatever you want. Right? That's, that's what happens when you yield. Your needs aren't met. You're concerned about the relationship, and so, so you want them to have all their needs met. Now, if you have a low concern for the relationship and a low desire to have needs met, you withdraw. Like, you just check out of the relationship altogether. And you go, you're not getting your way. I'm not getting my way. We're done, and we separate. Now, if you have a high, this one's the worst. If you have a high desire to have your needs met, and a low concern for the relationship to end a conflict, your solution is to win, and win at all costs. Now, here's another piece of advice I wish I would have gotten years ago, and it's this. If you set out to win in a conflict, guess what? 
you lose every single time. Now, um, put, put the picture of the diagram back up there again without, without the final corner, right? This, this, is, this, is, this, is, is what, this is what happens, right? This is how uh, compromise fits, because notice where compromise is, right? It's right in the middle. Now, here's what that means. It means that, that compromise is better than some of these solutions, right? It's not the worst way to end a conflict, but it's also not the best. Because here, here's what compromise is. Compromise doesn't have a high concern for the relationship. It doesn't have a low concern for the relationship. It doesn't really have a high concern for getting needs met. It doesn't have a high concern for not getting needs met. If you were to put a word by compromise, the word would be meh. Right? That's the way compromise works. It's not bad, but it's not the best. It's just kind of meh. Right? Let me show you a couple other things about compromise before we go into the next one. Because, because here's what else compromise does uh, that, that makes it meh. Right? Because what compromise does is if you come with wanting your needs met, and I come with wanting my needs met, and we both kind of give in to meet in this place in the middle, it's actually putting us against each other instead of working with each other. And so instead of the person that you're trying to end this conflict with, the person you're in the conflict, instead of being a team to solve a problem, all of a sudden you're against each other trying to, to find a solution. Compromise also means to weaken. Right? You probably heard it if, you, if, if you're in the engineering world or whatever. If a bridge uh, gets hit by something, it says that the structure is compromised, which means it's not as strong as it was. And so, so here's what compromise does in a relationship. The relationship isn't strengthened. It's weakened. It doesn't, it doesn't uh, put you as a team. You actually are working against each other. That's what compromise does. So what's the better way? Well, well let's put the one up there with the final quadru quadrant in, and that is to resolve the conflict is the better way. So there's a better way than putting two people against each other in a weakened state of the relationship where neither person gets what they need. The better way is called resolving the conflict. Listen to this definition of what it means to resolve. To resolve means to find a solution to a problem and to decide a firm course of action. So you see the difference here. Compromise puts two people against each other. It actually weakens the relationship. And neither person is really getting their needs met. They're both giving in. But to resolve a conflict means that instead of a conflict with a person, you've got a problem to solve, and you can work together to come up with a solution to the problem and a direction to move forward. And so what resolution does is instead of, instead of putting two people against each other, it puts them together moving forward. There's direction and there's unity. That's what resolving does. Now, what does this have to do with today's message? Nothing. I just thought it was cool. I'm kidding. It has everything to do with today's message. Because here's what we're going to see. Today, we're going to see what happens when, when, when people are facing conflict, when they have a problem to be solved, except this conflict isn't between just two people. It's between Jesus and this church that we're going to see today, this church in the city called Pergamum. And what I hope that you see as, you're, as we work our way through this is that you too have been in these situations where, where you're in conflict with Jesus. You're in conflict with God and there's a problem to be solved. And probably you've tried compromise and it didn't work. 
And today we're going to talk about what it looks like to have you and Jesus on the same team moving forward together. And this conflict that I'm talking about, just to give you a picture of it, is one that humanity has faced ever since humanity was humanity. Where God has laid out this pattern of righteousness in our our lives. He's put this path before us, and quite honestly, we don't want to follow it. And so when that happens, when that conflict is there, sometimes we'll look at God and we'll go, meh. Yeah, I'm not into this. And we compromise. And what we'll see is that compromise doesn't work. And here's why. Because in this relationship between God and us, between Jesus and his church, between Jesus and you, in this, comp- in this relationship when compromise happens, only one person in that relationship compromises, and it's us. We're the ones that change the value of our relationship with God. We're the ones that try to have our needs met in other ways. God never compromises. His truths stay the same. His character stays the same. His grace and his mercy stays the same. God doesn't move. And so today, what we're going to see is how that kind of compromise does weaken our spiritual walk. However, y'all, we're going to see something profoundly better. We're not just going to see the results of compromise. We're going to see a way to resolve the problem between us and God. We're going to see how to resolve any conflict, any problem between us and God. We're going to see two things in particular that we must know and we must believe to keep any compromise out of our lives. Well, let's look at verse 12 and let's dive in. So chapter 2, verse 12 uh, Jesus says, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. Now, as we've been going through this series, we're calling this series Breakthrough uh, because um, these are the first three chapters of Revelation are letters to churches. And Jesus is showing these churches how to break through what they're currently dealing with. That he is going to break down any wall for them uh, that they can break, so that they can move forward in their spiritual life. And what we've seen as we've gone through this is issues that we have in our life where Jesus can break down that wall and we can experience breakthrough. And, and that's where this, this, these broken mirrors up here capture in a visual way is what breakthrough looks like. And I've said this before, but if you're new today, I, I just want you to know what, what's behind each one of those mirror pieces is the name of those who call Fellowship Asheville home. And so every person that calls Fellowship Asheville home has been prayed for breakthrough. And it was fun, this morning, uh, right before the first service, I had a person share with me a breakthrough that her and her husband have experienced as we've been going through this series. And so, 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 so prayers are being answered. And I hope today you get to experience some breakthrough too. And, but what we're seeing in these letters to the churches is that in each one of these letters, Jesus introduces himself in a very specific way that that church needs to hear. And then he tells them uh, what they're doing wrong. He t- well, he tells them what they're doing right first. Then he tells them what they're doing wrong. He tells them what repentance looks like. He tells them what happens if they don't repent and what, then what happens if they do repent and, and the reward for that. And so he follows this, this same formula in all of them. And so in this one, to the church in Pergamum, he says he has this two-edged sword. What's interesting about a two-edged sword is if you had a two-edged sword, anybody could use it. You could use it with your right hand. You could use it with your left hand because there's a blade on both sides. It also means that no matter what hand you used it with, that sword was effective in meeting its goal no matter how it was used. You could use it swiping down. You could use it swiping up. In any way, it would meet its goal. If it was just a one-sided blade, that's not the case. 
but it's a two-sided, two-edged sword. Now, as we've gone through Revelation, one of the things that we've talked about is using the Bible to understand Revelation. And so although that is a great picture of what a sword does, the writer of Hebrews correlates that with something else that I think is captured here. And so in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says this. It says, for the word of God is living and active. And, and notice how the writer did this. Everything has a, a, a swipe down and a swipe up. Like it's the word of God is living and it is active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit for the joints and marrows and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Right? That's what a two-edged sword is. But here's my question for you. Beth, if you go back to that first slide because it's captured there. What does the writer of Hebrews correlate this two-edged sword to? What is that? The Word of God. The Word of God is like any two-edged sword. So the Word of God is the one, is the one that, that is living and active, and it, it, it pierces to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, discerning thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's what the Word of God does. And so Jesus is saying here to this church that he has the Word of God with him. That when he speaks, you can trust that it is God who's speaking because we see in the book of John, he is the Word of God. Now let's look at this church in Pergamum and see why this is important for them. Let's look at, at kind of what's going on around them. Verse 13, because he says to them, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, that's a very interesting title for a city, isn't it? We were talking at our worship huddle meeting about, gosh, can you imagine driving up to Pergamum and like the, the, the Chamber of Commerce has the sign, welcome, welcome to Pergamum, home city of Satan. Like, like that's where his throne is, you know, like, like why in the world would Jesus call this city the throne of, of Satan? Now, what was interesting about this city is there were vast libraries there. And with libraries come knowledge, but knowledge isn't a reason to be called the isn't the reason to be called Satan's throne. I just think it's interesting that in this city that was known for libraries, Jesus says he is the Word of God. But what this city was also known for in Pergamum, there was this ancient temple to Zeus. In in mythology, Zeus is the god of gods. And there was this saying that would be passed around in the city that this city became known for. And they would say, Zeus is Savior. And people would worship Zeus. And in these temples of Zeus and other gods of mythology, uh, there were all kinds of things that we're going to see in a little bit that would happen in those temples that would earn it the title Satan's throne. As a matter of fact, there's a Jewish commentator who was writing uh, about this time that the book of Revelation was written. And, 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 and this Jewish commentator says that the city of Pergamum was considered a modern-day Sodom and Gomorrah in the context of what was going on in that city. And in this city, Satan's throne, a city of about 150,000 people, this church was. These Jesus followers gathered together to worship Jesus. And so let's look at what they were doing right in this city. Look at the rest of verse 13. It says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name and you do not deny my faith even in the days of Antiochus my faithful witness who was killed uh, who was killed among you where Satan dwells and so here's what this church was doing right is that in the context of this city this modern day Sodom and Gomorrah where it is said that Zeus is savior 
people who have said yes to Jesus, who are part of this small new church, were dying because of their faith. And yet, this church kept telling people, Jesus is Savior, not, not Zeus. And they had this public display of their faith. Even, even in the face of death, they did not deny Jesus. They would proclaim him when those that they loved were being killed for proclaiming him. Y'all, Jesus is saying, good job. You are doing great in this. And he's going to tell them what they're doing wrong. Look at verse 14. He says, but I have a few things against you. Now, what's interesting, in these, in these letters to the churches, there are two churches that Jesus doesn't have anything against them. There's a couple of churches where there is one thing against them. This one, Jesus has a few things against them. Like, if Jesus has one thing against you, you pay attention. If he's got a few things against you, you better take out your notebook and, and start taking notes, right? Like, it's a big deal. I expected a little more. But that's fine, that's fine, that's fine. But it is a big deal. Look at the rest of verse 14. He says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. Okay, so let's talk about this a little bit. Here's these, these uh, Nicolaeans again. We're not quite, oh no, that's next, isn't it? Okay, let's talk about Balaam and Balak. Balak, Balak was um, this king of Moab, is, is who Balak is. And this is all taken from the book of Numbers. And so you can turn there and, and, and read it yourself. But, but Balak was this king of Moab. And as Israel was wandering through the desert, that's what the book of Numbers is about, he looks and he sees his kingdom and then he sees this nation coming through the desert and he thinks, he thinks, listen, these people are going to do one of two things. They're either going to take over my kingdom and knock me out of place or they're going to they're use up all the resources of my kingdom. I've got to stop these people. But he knew enough about the nation of Israel to know that they had this God named Yahweh that was the most powerful God in the land. And they knew that that God had, had, would protect his kids. He would protect the nation of Israel at all costs. And so Balak's thought is if, if I can have that God remove his blessing, remove his, his, his spiritual force field around this nation, then I can attack them and they won't be a problem anymore. Since he knew that it was a God problem, he enlisted a spiritual person to help deal with the problem. And that's where Balaam enters in. Now, Balaam is this unique person in the Old Testament. Because when you look at Balaam, you see that he's got this, this genuine relationship with God. He talks to God, and God listens, and, and God talks back, and they have this interesting, they have this very interesting relationship. And so, so I think he had a genuine relationship with the God of Israel, but yet, for some reason, he wasn't traveling with Israel. And so Balak says, listen, I need you to make them sin so that God won't like them anymore. And so that then I can capture them. And Balak tells Balaam, and by the way, I'm going to pay you pretty handsomely for this. And Balaam goes, okay, let's see what God does. In other words, Balaam goes, meh, let's try this. And Balaam compromises his faith for the sake of money. And so Jesus is looking at this, at this church in Pergamum and saying, there are some of you, we'll see, that you have too have compromised your faith in the same way that Balaam did for the sake 
of money in the same way that Balak did. But y'all, listen, listen to this, and, and we'll come back to this. When we compromise, God isn't compromised. What Balak didn't know is that that nation had been sinning long before Balaam showed up. And God never changed. He was always their covenant God. It's like, it's like Ham read up here from Exodus 33, that, that they were in a covenantal relationship with God. Which, by the way, I would love to see the Cam Spear versions of Bible sometime. You know, like, I bet that would be so much fun to read, to see people go, yo, 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 God, no, hold on, hold on, hold on. Because you know, that's in Hebrew, that's a loose translation, right? But, 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 but that's what happens. God isn't compromised in spite of, our, of, of when we do compromise. When we sin, God doesn't. He isn't weakened in any way by our compromise. His promises and his covenant truths stand true and stand sure, even in the midst of our compromise. Well, apparently some people in the church of Pergamum were, were like Balaam. And they were in this covenantal relationship with God, and yet they let money get in the way of their faith. And we're going to see how in just a minute. Because look at, look at what this compromise produced in them. In verse 14, it says, But I have a few things against you. You have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So we see these two other sins, these two sins are prevalent in this church, among certain people in this church in Pergamum. Now the teachings of the Nicolaitans, we still don't know what they are. I would imagine that they're aligned to these two sins here, and, uh, because these are the ones we do know, that there's idolatry and there's sexual immorality. There's the eating of the food sacrificed to idols. And I want to paint the context for you. Of, of what this looked like for them. Because I think when we see what it meant for them, we would think, yeah, if I was in that situation, I might make the same decision they did. Because, because here's why. In this time and in this city, there were, there were trade guilds. And so if you had a job, you had a trade, most likely. You were, you were a brick maker, you were a carpenter, you were a shop owner, you had a trade. And for each trade, there was a guild associated with that trade. There was a group of people. And you had to be in the guild to have the job. If you weren't a part of the guild, you didn't have a job. And these guilds would meet not in these temples, but they would meet in the kitchens connected to these temples. Because all of these temples, like the temple of Zeus, right? You, you had the temple that would go on there, and you would have worship that would go on there. But next to the temple was this kitchen. And this kitchen is where people would go to have their meals. A lot of people didn't have kitchens at home, and so they would go to these other kitchens to have their meals. And the food in those meal in those kitchens, oftentimes was food that came from the temple that was sacrificed to the gods for worship. And so if you were in a guild and you sat down at a meal in one of these kitchens, chances are you're eating food sacrificed to these foreign gods. And the problem is, if you're not in the guild and you don't do what the guild does, you get kicked out. And if you get kicked out, you don't have a job. And if you don't have a job, you can't feed your family. You can't feed yourself. You can't pay rent. And so it is this real problem for, for the folks there in that church. And so in order to have money, they would, in a sense, have to participate in the worship of these foreign gods. And this is like Balaam. They would sell out their faith for money. 
believers in Jesus were doing this in this church in Pergamum. Not the whole church, but there was a portion of the church doing this. They were compromising their faith for money and it stinks. But not only was this happening, Jesus also says there was this sexual immorality that was happening among those, the, among part of the church. Now keep in mind, the culture in Pergamum was very sexualized, considered the modern day Sodom and Gomorrah back then. And so in many of these temples that were attached to these kitchens where, where these guilds would come for their meetings and then participate in the, the food sacrificed to the idols there, it's believed that sometimes they would also go, hey, let's go next door and worship. And by the way, the worship at this place involves sex. And there would be prostitutes in the temple, male and female. And to worship that God, you would have to participate in sex acts with these temple priests and these prostitutes. And so the tension was, if I don't do this, I don't have a job. And so some people in this church were choosing to do that and participating in this, in this awful practice of worship just so they could probably feed their kids. Like, let's get real for a moment. Like, like if you're in that situation, it's hard to say no. But here's what makes this compromise unique for them. Because remember, what they were doing right was this public display of their faith. They didn't back down even against the threat of death. Well, I think not only were they doing right in public, what they were doing wrong was also in public. Because here's, what's, here's what's, what's interesting. This happened in these, in these guild meetings. This happened in this cultural context of, 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 of being able to keep your job. Not only was the food that worshipped to idols, not only were they engaging in those, in these public meetings, in these public events, but... But so was the sexual immorality. It was also public. Somehow, I don't want to know. It was public. The point is, Jesus knew. And the point is, too, when this letter was read to the church, the church knew who was doing it. It was public. Right? And here's what happens when people are faced with that tough of a scenario and here's the truth of compromise is that compromise always has a cost right there's always a reason that someone chooses the compromise that they choose it's never because it seems like a good idea at the time it is because it seems like the only idea at the time Compromise seems like the only decision to end the conflict, the only good decision to, for a good solution to move something forward. It's like on our chart, compromise seems like a good solution to the problem. And to those in the church in Pergamum, this public display of sin and of eating food sacrificed to idols and engaging in sexual immorality seemed like a good idea. And just to be clear, when I say sexual immorality, here's what I mean. And here's what the Bible attests to in that. It's any sex act outside the boundaries of marriage. And marriage is defined biblically as one man and one woman together in a covenant relationship with God. And any act of sex outside of that, the Bible calls sexual immorality. But here's the joy of our Bible. You can also read the New Testament and it says, and such were some of you. Like, y'all, this isn't a them issue. It is us. We compromise 
all the time in very different ways. This one is just highlighting eating food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality. And here's why this is a conflict. For those of you in growth groups, you've been studying the book of Acts. In Acts 15, as churches were getting started all over, all over the known world then, the, the council in Jerusalem gathered together and said, okay, what are we, what are we saying to these new churches that, that, that they need to, the path before them for a righteous life? And it was two things. Guess what they were? You weren't to eat food, sacrifice to idols, and you weren't to participate in sexual immorality. That's where the conflict is with this church. They had a clear mandate from God, and they said, meh, I don't think you understand, God. I've got to compromise. And to this church in Pergamum, this public compromise for money and sexual immorality seemed like a good way to end this conflict because provision was at stake. How would they eat? How would they pay rent? How would they feed their kids? The only way to work was to be part of these guild meetings. And these guild meetings had food sacrificed to idols. And these guild meetings sometimes engaged in the worship at these temples that engaged in sexual immorality. And so you see, here is what is at the core of compromise. And this is, this is the core of the cause of compromise is this, that compromise at the core of it doesn't trust the promises of God. Compromise at its core doesn't trust the character of God. Which is why Jesus says this, if they don't repent, look at what happens in verse 16. Verse 16 says, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And what is the sword that he has, this double-edged sword? What is it? It's the word of God. You see, he's going to come with his truth and with his promises that they can trust. Now, now, if you're familiar with your Bible, you know, like, warring with God isn't a good position to be in, right? Jacob tried it, and he's the only one that walked away with a limp, right? And Jesus is saying, listen, listen, I can come to you, and I can bring this two-edged sword, and I can split who needs to be split, and, and, and divide what needs to be di- di- divided, and I can do that with the word of God. I don't know how he planned on doing this. I don't know if it was sending a prophet-like person saying, thus says the Lord, that would call out who the, who the people are that need to repent. I don't know if this, this letter to them served as his sword, but all I know is that when Jesus says repent because you're compromising, it's a good idea to do that. It's a good idea to change what you're doing. It's a good idea to seek resolution with Jesus instead of going, eh, let's compromise. When Jesus says repent, seek resolution, and leave compromise behind you. Because in leaving compromise behind you, this is what he's asking you to do. He's asking you to trust God's promises because it will resolve any conflict with God. Just trust him and trust his promises. Because look at what he does now. Okay, that's the bad part. That's the, that's the repent. That's the, this is what it looks like if you don't. Now he's going to say, but here's what happens when you do. Look at verse 17. He says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Now, manna was the substance that the nation of Israel had as they traveled through the desert, where y'all literally, God would sprinkle their food on the ground for them every morning. All they had to do was walk out of their tent, gather it, and they had food for the whole day. God was their provider. 
And, he's, and, and, and Jesus is saying, listen, if you repent of this compromise, you can trust in me because I will provide for you. And what I love about this is that, is that he also calls it hidden manna. He says you don't need to compromise when you trust God as provider. And those, and those in this church, when they trusted the, God of pro, uh, uh, the promises of God, and they would trust him to provide work, and here's what would happen. Here's why it's hidden manna. Sometimes you don't get to see what God's going to do until you trust him to do it. Right? What if? What if the believers... Those who had said yes to Jesus in this city said, you know what, We're, we can't do this anymore. We can't eat food sacrificed to idols. We can't go into those temples and worship these foreign gods because we know the true God. Their fear was things would always remain the same. They, wouldn't be out, they would be out of work. Uh, they, they wouldn't be able to provide. But what if in trusting God, they still had a job? What if in trusting God, it actually changed the way that these guilds worked in the entire city. Wouldn't that be incredible? See, that's why it's hidden manna. You never know what God's going to do until you trust. I remember one time, this is when I was single and, and, and had a budget about this big to work with. And, and, and I was writing my tithe check when people used to write checks for tithe. And, and, and uh, I felt like the Spirit asked me to give a little bit more, which was interesting because I didn't have a little bit more to give. Right? And, and if you were to look at that check, the way it was written, it would look like a, per, a very old person with shaky hands, like my grandmother's handwriting wrote the check, because I was so scared to write the check. Well, I let the check sit on my desk for a few days, because I wanted to make sure, you know, I heard right, and, and went to church, dropped it in the offering box, and was like, okay, God, like, you're going to have to provide. And in my mailbox was a check that exact amount. Does that happen every time? No, but it happened that time. That's why I'm telling you, right? Because it could happen to you. I had no idea what manna was God, God was going to provide. It was hidden until I trusted him. And so for this church, Jesus is saying, when you trust me, I will provide for you. You don't see it now, but I will provide for you. That addresses that issue, the eating the food sacrificed to idols. What about the sexual immorality? Y'all, this is beautiful. Here's what Jesus says to that. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And so what promise needs to be trusted here to end compromise? Well, here, here's, here's what's going on. Keep in mind, this sexual immorality was public. People knew what was going on in the church. They knew who was doing it. It wasn't the whole community committing the sin. It was some in the church. But I would imagine since it was public, the whole church knew what was going on. The whole church knew who was compromising their faith sexually for the sake of money. Now, here's the, the interesting thing about sin and about compromise. Often, shame is present there. And here's the problem with shame. Shame isn't enough to stop sin. Right? These sins that were committed were these public sins. And I'm sure there was plenty of shame in the church to try and get them to change that behavior. Because here's what shame tells you. Shame tells you, you are bad. Shame tells you, you aren't good enough. 
when sin is publicly displayed, shame is often this private feeling. However, shame isn't going to change you because, and shame isn't going to change a church because shame doesn't change our heart. Right? Parent, shame may change your kid's behavior, but it won't change their heart. And if it doesn't change their heart, it's not going to last. You see, this church in Pergamum needed something other than shame to change their heart. And maybe this is what you need. Maybe there's a compromise that you've been making because this voice in your head keeps telling you you're not enough, you're bad, so go do it anyway. Maybe you need something other than shame and condemnation. Because there's something better that changes your heart than hearing you're bad and you're not good enough. How about letting God tell you something different? In a court of law, At this time, if you were convicted of a crime, you would stand before a judge. And and that judge would issue a verdict over you. And if you were found guilty, they would give you a black stone to show your guilt. If you were considered innocent by the judge, guess what color stone you would get? A white stone. You see, Jesus is telling this church, Flee compromise because you have been given and you will be given in heaven this this white stone that instead of condemnation and shame, there is freedom because you are set free from the sin. And not only is there freedom, there's also this new name. And what's great about this new name, when you look at the scripture, anytime God gives a new name to someone, there's always a promise attached to it that they can trust, a promise that describes the character of God. God doesn't just randomly give out new names. He does it because there's a specific promise to be trusted. And I think the new name here is that you are innocent. That's the promise attached to this new name. And that is a promise that that Jesus wants his church to trust. Listen, I don't have a new name with for you. I could come up with one, and it could be fun. I, I like giving people nicknames. That's how I know them. In first service, we had Sprinkles, because he likes Sprinkles Donuts. It's Sarah Turner's husband, Stephen, so call him Sprinkles. He loves it. Yeah, yeah, I do. I like coming up with names. But I'm not going to do that. We'd be here all day. I do, though, have a promise for you, Right? And it's one that was spoken thousands of years ago, and it's still true today, and it's found in the book of Romans. And this promise is this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here's what this means. When shame puts those voices in your head that says, you're not good enough, you're bad, you're a sinner, you're going to do this anyway, whatever those voices are, in your head. Listen, I don't know what you've done and I don't know who knows about it, but here's what I do know. When those voices pop around in your head, Jesus says there is no condemnation for you. And if those voices in your head are condemning you, you can tell them to go to hell where they belong. Because that's where they belong. They belong on Satan's throne. Because Jesus says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Listen, church, you are free. Now, if you don't know this freedom found in Jesus, then let today be the day you say yes to it. 
Let today be the day where shame is silenced forevermore. Because today you can be free of that sin and that shame because of what Jesus has done for you. And he has provided this good, right, and personal relationship with the God that loves you and created you. And it really is that simple of saying yes to him. But for those of us who do know Jesus, let me ask you, has that condemnation led you to compromise? And maybe not in a big way, maybe not eating food sacrificed to idols, maybe not in sexual immorality, but is there a part of your life that goes, meh, to God? Here's what we're going to do as we've been going through this series. We've been taking moments to kind of experience truth and hopefully experience breakthrough, and this is going to be one of those times. And what I'm going to ask everybody to do here is in a few minutes, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. And I really want everybody to close their eyes because I'm what, I, what I'm going to ask us to do as a church is very personal. But I believe when we own truth with our body, something it connects our mind and our hearts in a very, in a very uh, specific way. That can only happen when we do something with our body. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going I'm to actually say a whole lot of condemning things up here that probably have bounced around in your head more than once. Because it could be the voice of a parent, it could be the voice of a teacher, the voice of a friend, the voice of a boss, the voice of a spouse, the voice of Satan himself whispering into your ear. And as I read these things, what I want you to do with every room, with every eye in here closed, is I want you to raise your hand if this is a voice that you hear of condemnation in your head. Because then what we're going to do is I'm going to lead us through a time of prayer where we are free from those voices of condemnation. All right, so everybody close your eyes. Bow your heads if you want, but, but close your eyes. And I want you to raise your hand and own if you've heard any of these bouncing around in your mind. If you've heard you are a bad person, you can raise your hand. If you've heard you aren't good enough, you can raise your hand. If you've heard you aren't enough, raise your hand. If you've heard you are stupid, raise your hand. You are ugly, raise your hand. You are a sinner, raise your hand. You are shameful, raise your hand. You are disgusting, raise your hand. You aren't worth anything, raise your hand. You aren't worth being loved, you aren't worthy of affection, raise your hand. You are a loser, raise your hand. You will never measure up, raise your hand. You will never make him happy, you will never make her happy, raise your hand. You might as well end it all. Church, with your eyes closed, hear me. These are the words of Satan, and he is a liar. And he loves to condemn us. But Jesus says there's no condemnation for us who are in Christ. And so these words of condemnation in your head aren't Jesus' words. And so what I want us to do is I want us to, 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 let, to ask Jesus to set us free from them. And I'm going to pray for us. And then I'm going to pause and I'm going to lead us in this moment where we ask Jesus to set us free. And, and, and if your hand is raised, if any of these words 
meant condemnation to you or any other words that have meant condemnation to you, I'm going to say Jesus set us free from, and we're going to repeat that together. And then I want you to say out loud what that voice of condemnation says to you. And what I hope I hear is this murmuring in here of us speaking aloud the voice of condemnation, and we are going to ask Jesus to set us free from it, and we are going to trust and believe by faith that he will. And so let's pray. Jesus, I ask you to set us all free from condemnation. And that condemnation that we so easily hear, and, and even more scary, that we so easily believe. Jesus, set us free from this. And so for each of you that heard this voice of condemnation, I ask that, that you are set free. And we're going to speak these words of condemnation out loud to you, Jesus, so that we can own them and we can call them what they are. They are, the, the, they are from the throne of Satan. And instead, Father, we will believe your truth. And so church, let's say together, Jesus set me free from, and then you say what your condemnation is. So Jesus... Set me free from. In Jesus' name, child of God, open your eyes and listen to me. Listen to Jesus' words. Read them and trust them because you are free. Jesus said this in the book of John. So if the Son sets you free, you are free sometimes. Is that what he said? You are free indeed. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. And so what I've got, white stones are actually hard to find. But here's what I want. If you are a follower of Jesus, I want you to take one of these white stones with you today. So just take, take it and pass it around. All right? And pat, th that one stays on that side. This one goes up the middle. If you're a follower of Jesus, take one of these white stones as a reminder that you are innocent before God because of what Jesus has done for you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, um, I ask that you say yes to him today. And this white stone represents the freedom that you have found in him today. I'm going to pray for us again, and then we're going to go into a time of worship. Just keep that, those, those bowls being passed around. Jesus, who the Son sets free, is free indeed. And may... I, may we believe that. And may we leave this place more free than we came in. In Christ's name we pray, amen.